0: Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Do Good to Lead Well podcast series. This is an exciting time because this week marks the one year anniversary of the launch of the podcast. And because of your ongoing support and interest, Do Good to Lead Well is now ranked in the top 3% of podcasts in the world, which is incredible. So thank you very, very much. I'm also excited to share that today marks the 50th episode of the podcast. And to mark this very special occasion, I'm very excited to share with you a special CEO mastermind forum that I hosted with New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Robert Waldinger, who is leading the longest running study into happiness ever conducted out of Harvard University. And in this special conversation, one-hour conversation, Dr. Waldinger summarizes the key results from this extraordinary research. You'll also hear from top CEOs in this private session who ask compelling questions around what are some of the key insights and how they apply to our personal and professional lives. I am grateful that Dr. Waldinger and the CEOs who took part in this forum... Kindly provided permission for me to release this very special event. Please rate the podcast, like the podcast, share the podcast with your network. It means so much to me that you're passionate about the science and practice of positive leadership. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode as much as I did creating it. Thank you so, so much. And I'm excited to share another 50 episodes with you. Over the upcoming year, without further ado, I want to welcome Bob Waldinger to to the Mastermind Forum. Good afternoon, Bob. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good afternoon. Really happy to be here, and glad that you all were willing to take the time out from your busy days to talk about this. It's it's something that I love, but it I used to think it was an acquired taste of this thing called adult lifespan developmental research. So. Craig asked me to start by explaining to you what I have been doing for the last 20 years, what this study is that I'm the fourth director of, and then to talk about some of the biggest findings. And then maybe we can have a discussion about what some of the implications might be for those of you who are leaders in workplaces. So what I do is I direct the Harvard study of adult development. And as far as we know, it's the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. A study that follows the same people. And it's followed them from their teenage years all the way into old age and followed their children. So two generations now. The study began in 1938. And it began as two studies, actually, that didn't know about each other. One was a study begun at Harvard University Health Service. And it was a study of normal adolescent to young adult development. And so the deans at Harvard chose some Harvard sophomores, 19 year olds, as fine upstanding examples of normal adult development. I mean, now we look at this and we smile because, you know, if you want to study, normal adult development, you study all white males from Harvard. Maybe it is the most politically incorrect sample you can imagine. We're constantly having to explain to the National Institutes of Health why they should still fund us. But I will say that we've achieved gender balance. We brought in all the spouses. We brought in the children, more than half of whom are women. But at the time, it started with a bunch of Harvard men. In addition, at Harvard Law School, a Harvard Law professor and his wife, who was a social worker in 1938, were interested in the question of juvenile delinquency, but particularly how some children who were born into so much disadvantage managed to stay on good developmental paths, managed to stay out of trouble. So they collected 456 boys average age 12, from not just the poorest families in the city of Boston in 1938, but the most troubled family, that these were families known on average to five social service agencies for domestic violence and substance abuse and parental mental illness and physical illness. And then the question was, how do some children stay out of trouble and do well? So both of these studies, the Harvard men and the inner city Boston boys, both of them were studies of thriving at a time when the vast majority of the research done on human development was done on what goes wrong. So it was actually somewhat radical. So that's what we did. And we initially brought all these young men in and did extensive medical exams and psychiatric exams. But in addition, people went to their homes and interviewed their parents. And we have these wonderful, elaborate notes in their charts about what was being served for dinner and how affectionate the parents were and what the discipline style of the family was. So many rich sociological tidbits on these 724 families. And then they all grew up. The, the Harvard men were of an age that they were eligible to go to World War II. So virtually all of them served in the war, 268. And then they came back from the war. The inner city men were too young for that. But then we followed them as they grew up and became doctors, bricklayers, factory workers, lawyers. John F. Kennedy was part of the study. Ben Bradley, who was the longtime editor of the Washington Post, who broke the Watergate scandal. And most people were not particularly prominent. Most people led fairly anonymous lives, but lives of all kinds. And so we followed them, asking them every year, every two years to give us reports about their lives, but also getting their medical records. And eventually, we drew blood for DNA, which... I think it is pretty amazing because in 1938 dna wasn't even conceived of we put them into the mri scanner and we scan their brains as they watch different kinds of images we bring them into our laboratory and deliberately stress them out and then watch how quickly they recover from stress so a whole variety and we, we videotape them having arguments with their spouses we talk to their children we there's so many ways in which we try to get at this amorphous thing we call well-being and we call human thriving as people go through life. The uniqueness of this is that most research, most psychological research, most research in general involves taking snapshots of just one point in time. So following people over, you know, we're in our 85th year, that kind of longitudinal perspective where you can check in on the same things over and over again allows you to kind of draw a little trajectory for each person on all kinds of indices like you can draw trajectories of income you can trajectories of marital satisfaction just so many ways in which you can watch how life morphs and changes for lots of people over their lives so then Craig asked me to tell you what the big findings were, and I'll do that. And then we can launch into some some discussion, some question and answer, because there are lots of things I can tell you about. So we've published over 300 scientific papers, most of whom are in journals that nobody reads, but they're very technical. We've published 11 books now. We just published the 11th book, The Good Life. And when we distill everything, there are kind of two huge findings that leap out. One is not going to surprise any of you. It's that taking care of your health really matters for how long we stay healthy as we go through life and then how long we live. So what does that mean? It means getting preventive health care. It means not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking getting regular exercise, not becoming obese, that these are the big ticket items that predict longer years of life, but also longer years of disability-free life. And that's not new. Many, many other studies have found this, but our study has certainly demonstrated the power of that. But the finding that we didn't believe at first was the finding that I gave a TED Talk about. 2015. And that this book, the book that we just published is is a deep dive into. And it was the finding that surprised us that, that the people who stayed healthiest longer and the people who lived longer were the people who had better interpersonal relationships. That the more people were connected to other people and the warmer those connections the more they stayed healthy. Now, it made sense that they'd be happier. You know, if you have better relationships, you're happier. That's not a surprise. But how could better relationships predict that you would be less likely to get coronary artery disease or type 2 diabetes or degenerative arthritis? Like, how could that be a thing? And then many other research groups began to find the same thing. And that's important because particularly in my area of research, no single study can prove anything. That what we want is replication. We want different studies to point in the same direction. And then we can have a lot of confidence in a particular finding. And so many studies have found the same thing. And we've been spending the last 10 years in my lab looking at how this works, like how do relationships actually get into your body and change your physiology? How does that happen? So that's where we are. And I mean, there's so many things I could go into. So I would be happy to get your thoughts about this, take questions, skepticism, anything you want to offer. Well,
0: and thank you, Bob, for that amazing summary. As a social scientist, just love the, the the longitudinal nature; just extraordinary to think about how many generations have been followed, and then the rich data that ex- that's extracted. I have a copy of the book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Just filled with so many amazing insights. Just want to open it to the floor, and so anyone wants to jump in and talk to a top global expert and explore these. Fantastic and and really thought provoking findings. So, if you want to unmute yourself and ask the question, it would be uh, wonderful to to hear from each of you. So, Don Romano, I'm
2: the uh, president and CEO of Hyundai Canada. Yeah, I agree. I, I think one one of the points that you're making is the relationship between being happy and the ability to have those personal relationships with others. And you know, we spend it seems like. At least historically have spent more time working in an office or working working than we have at home and so the, a lot of those relationships are the people that we we work with on a day in and day out basis but a lot of that fell apart during the pandemic as we moved to a work from home environment and now as we begin to transition back at least to some degree even in a hybrid it seems like there's a big challenge in trying to reestablish those relationships And I was just wanting your thoughts on that because there appears to be a lot of controversy. I understand both sides, but one is the fact that I I do notice that people that come in more often they they tend to really enjoy the camaraderie and the social aspect, the ability to interact personally with somebody. But there's also a big force that says, "Hey, it's more economically advantageous to, to work from home, and certainly a lot more flexible."
1: Yeah, it's such a I mean, it's such a wonderful question, and I know all of you are worried about this. Everybody's worried about it. What are we doing with these changing work patterns that we're probably going to change anyway, but COVID accelerated everything so dramatically? And I think you're right that what we know is that the kind of spontaneous interactions and casual contact that you can have in the workplace get filtered out in a Zoom meeting like this one. You know, it's very structured. So what do you do? You know, think about, one of the things that research shows us is that the way relationships form easily is through casual contact with the same people repeatedly. So that's why the water cooler at work became this kind of iconic thing, you know, or the coffee machine or wherever people gather. It was because you'd run into people and some of the people you'd know but you'd exchange conversation and, and maybe even spark ideas and perhaps deepen relationships. And then you also make new relationships. So what does it mean if we don't have that? And one of the things we, we do know is that it can be structured. So actually, Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General in the United States, has done a, a sort of experiment that worked really well, where in his staff meeting he had one person spend the first five minutes just telling the group something about their personal life that they wanted people to know. And people loved. That was their favorite meeting. It was their favorite portion of the meeting. And people began to know a little bit about each other's personal lives. So some of you may know that the Gallup organization in the US, which does a lot of survey research, they did a a survey of 15 million workers around the globe. And one of their main questions was, do you have a best friend at work? And what they meant was, do you have someone at work who you talk to about your life, about personal matters? You know, if if we had it set up, I'd do a survey. I'd make you all guess what percentage of workers of those 15 million workers had a best friend. It was 30%. And when they looked at that 30% compared to the 70% who did not, the 30% were more engaged in their jobs. They were more productive in their jobs. They were rated more highly by supervisors. They were less likely to leave their jobs. There was less turnover. And they were less likely to get injured on the job. They looked more deeply at the 70% who said they didn't. Have a best friend at work. And that 70%, when they asked them, Are you engaged in your job? Only one in 12 said that they were engaged in their job, that many of them were just kind of quietly checked out, most of them. And and I'll give you one more finding from that study, which I think will be relevant to everybody in this meeting. When they asked CEOs whether they felt lonely, over half of them said that they were lonely much of the time. So all of this is really important when we think about work patterns and whether we should try at least to bring people together some of the time. So I'll give you an example. I work at Mass General Hospital. I have a research group, but we haven't been coming in during COVID. Our research is all online. But I have my little group come over to my house every other week for lunch. And when I sort of get a little too busy and I try to postpone it, they all say, no, 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 we, we need those lunches. That there's something so important about our being together, probably about eating together too, but certainly being together. That, that just is not replaced by our f- very frequent online meetings. Awesome right. question. Yeah, go ahead, user.
3: Yeah, so I used to be sad. I'm president of Home Capital. We're primarily a mortgage lender in uh, in Canada. My question is very close to Don's and in, in that I was going to ask, interpersonal seems to be the key to a lot of success. But what what does that mean, and can you carry it on a Zoom call, or is it? What is the definition of
1: interpersonal? Uh, good interpersonal relationship. Uh, the definition is going to feel a little bit feely, touchy to you, but I'll try to make it less so. A lot of the definition is feeling seen, feeling like somebody knows me and, and that I matter in this group, right? So that it, that it matters to people if I show up, that people listen when I say something, when, that people actually respond when I say something, that, that I count in this group, in whatever group I'm in. And so that's really important, particularly on Zoom, where we're all in our little squares, right? and so there often needs to be a kind of more active acknowledgement of people's contributions of more active solicitation saying you know some of you haven't said anything yet what are you thinking about this you know really reaching out in a way that you might not have to do if you're sitting around a, a table in a meeting room because you can read body language much more easily than you can you know On Zoom. So I would say one of the things is that a good relationship is one where you feel seen by the other person or by the group you're in, where you feel that you can be basically authentic. You can say what's on your mind as as opposed to having to stifle yourself, that you can take risks, right? And we certainly want that in a business setting. We want people to bring their more creative ideas and play with possibilities. But it can be really hard to do that if it's a culture that doesn't foster that. So that's where I know I'm getting beyond what you asked. But you know, Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard Business School, and she talks a lot about something she calls psychological safety. And if you think about it, that atmosphere of feeling safe—and I don't mean warm and cuddly—I just mean safe, like nobody's gonna, you know, attack me if I put myself out there, that that's hugely important in terms of people's productivity, their engagement, their willingness to hang in there and put in extra effort, right? So how do we make people safe, you know, including remotely on Zoom? Great answer and insight, Bob. I see uh, Michael, you're up next. I'm
4: Michael Garrity, I'm the CEO of a financial technology company called FinanceEd. I just ordered the book, so you might answer this by the time I get the book delivered on Amazon tomorrow. But there are three other things you know that often correlate to or are meant to correlate either positively or, or negatively to happiness. And so I'm wondering how any of these other attributes factored into the the thinking of the study. The first one, of course, it, you know, almost begins where you started, which is a whole bunch of affluent white people from Harvard. So you know, does money buy happiness would be the first question that I'd ask you. You know secondly, you know we see these regular lists of who the happiest people on earth are by geography, right? and whether they live in Finland or live in the jungles of Costa Rica. So did geography come into place at all as a and, and have a correlation positively or negatively to happiness? And then the last one is faith, where we hear that people within a strong, faith or happy or over longevity or, or, or less happy, depending on which particular faith that is. So those three characteristics, yeah. I'd, love, I'd love some commentary
1: on. Sure. So the question of money, does money buy happiness? Well, if you look at all the messages we get all day long from the media, you would say, oh, it must, right? Because they're telling us, you know, you buy this new car, you're going to be so happy. You know, you serve this brand of pasta, your family dinners, they're going to be blissful, right? You know, we're like constantly bombarded with these messages. And even though we sort of know they're not real, you can really get fooled into thinking, yeah, that's it. That's it. If I just get the right amount of money and spend it on the right things, that's not true. <laughs> but the, it is complicated. And in fact, there was, even, there was a new paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last week about this. everybody's everybody's trying to understand it. So Daniel Kahneman, who some of you know, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, he did a study in which the question was, as your income goes up, do do your levels of happiness go up? And what he found was that once you get your basic needs met, and so he estimated in the U.S. a few years ago, it was about $75,000 a year annual household income, but that's a very crude estimate. But basically, once you get your basic needs met, then the more more money you make, your happiness doesn't go up by much at all. Then another researcher from Berkeley said, no, 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 actually, in my data, it goes up. And so then they did this adversarial collaboration, which was really cool. But they said, okay, we're going to try to look at data together and see if we can come up with what the data really show and what they showed was that for happy people if you keep making more money yeah your happiness goes up somewhat so but that if you're particularly if you're not happy your happiness does not go up as you make more money beyond the kind of 75000 basic needs so the take home that i get from that is that if you are looking for money to make you happy and you are not happy, it's not going to do that. And that, that's probably the best way that we can summarize what is a fairly complicated set of research findings. So, okay, so that's money, right? Then you ask me geography, right? Because they have all these blue zones, right? Like Dan Buettner did the blue zones, and, and it's like, is this little village in Japan where these people who eat yogurt in Sardinia, and it's a certainly diet, diet and all that make a difference but it's it's not so much geography probably as it is culture that what they find in these blue zones is that when people are in communities where they are bonded to each other and where they encounter each other and where well-being is a priority collective well-being those people are happier and they live longer. so is a tiny village in Japan where the custom is when you're five years old, you get assigned a friend group and they're supposed to remain your friends throughout life. And you'll, they've done these wonderful documentaries where they have like these 90 year olds who've been friends since they were five and they get together regularly every week or more and they're just always together. And those people live way longer than the, the average. You know, there are cultures like, you know, like Bhutan where literally to pass a piece of legislation, the proposed law has to be analyzed according to all these parameters of will it increase collective well-being in our country or not. And even if it does other things, if it's not going to make people happy, they're not going to pass that law. That's a very different culture from certainly the way we live in the United States where a lot of times it's every person for themselves. And there's like this culture of rugged individualism. So I would say that culture makes much more difference than geography itself. I mean, that said, during the Boston winters, do I live, wish I lived in a nicer climate? Yes, but, but that's not, you know, the Scandinavian countries are among the happiest. So it's not so much about climate. All right. And the last thing you asked about was faith. And now I'm going to tell you about our study, which is just one study. When we compared the people who had either religious practices or spiritual practices and the people who had none, the groups weren't on average happier or less happy. So having faith didn't make you happy or didn't make you less happy. The people who did have religious and spiritual practices would commonly say that these were These got them through hard times and that they were a source of solace, but it wasn't the case that on average, being a person of faith made you happier. And I think there are, there are a variety of studies and you can probably find studies that show all kinds of things, but there is no definitive research that says, you know, being a person of faith is going to make you happy. Thank you so much. Great, great questions, Michael, and thank you, Bob, so much for
0: wonderful your wonderful insights, uh, Sean.
5: Good afternoon, everyone. I, I guess I came in at a new, at a unique time. I'm, I'm new to the CEO role. I've been fortunate to have some leadership positions along the way, but I actually came in mid to near the end of the time of COVID, um, where the CEO at the time had left, and there's a bit of a period. So again, you you come in at a time where you're cutting a lot of costs and you know staff have taken steps back in wages or unique things or people are transitioning back into the office. So we've really taken a, an approach where it's the people over to take care of our people, to take care of the clients and whatnot. So we've really embraced like, again, we've uh, implemented 40 work weeks for portions and you know invested in mental health and whatnot like that. And, and I want to know if we're on the right track, but I also just, again, to have the opportunity to have a conversation with you, I wanted to know if you had any advice for someone coming in new to the role, to ensure that we don't a we don't lose momentum, and again, we just want to make sure that people want to come to work, and that it's a safe place to come to work, and that it's not we're not using them to get the objective done. That we that we need them and care about them, and like that we truly care about what goes on at their home, and that they're happy with their. And it's a safe space. If you had a fight with your husband, that you can come in and go, hey, like I'm not me today. So we're trying to foster that, but with other than that, I want to know if you have uh, advice for someone new to the to the CEO position and to ensure that we can continue to
1: move forward. Well, first of all, I just want to applaud that. I mean that is so important. and what they're finding, and this is there's a lot of good research out of business schools about this that when you do the kind of thing you're talking about, where you prioritize employee well-being, not just with HR programs, but, but really walk the walk, like from the CEO down, you know, and all the leaders and they're more personal in what they share and they encourage people to, you know, to take care of themselves. Those are the workplaces where people aren't just happier. They do better. The bottom line is better. Right. And so you'll find that you have more engaged employees and that the, you know, again, there, there's some good work, I think out of Stanford business school. where they show that the the climate of fear actually works well in the short term. Like if you're a leader who manages by fear, you'll get better performance quickly and then it will taper off and then you will get disengagement and often sabotage. So doing the reverse, which is what you're describing, is really important. And one of the things that the you know, there's some work out of Harvard Business School, out of the Sloan School at MIT, and some others that, that show that when CEOs model some of this, when you are a little more personal, it doesn't mean you bury your soul in every meeting at all, but it means that when you're a little more personal, that it sets a, a tone for people. And that when you create situations where people can be more collaborative and less competitive, where you create situations where people can socialize a little bit, not on work time necessarily, but where there are places to have fun, where you sponsor marathons or whatever you do, like clubs or whatever, that these are the things that, that actually seem to matter. But the one message that keeps coming is that it has to start with leadership. It can't simply be the purview of human resources because people need to see it in order to believe that it's okay. To, to be that way in the workplace.
5: Yeah, I really appreciate that. We're trying to lead with missions and visions and values, especially a new guy coming in. And we're trying to go as an organization, as we deliver our strategic plans and whatnot, from top down, that we are walking the walks, so that we're not trying to recruit people or clients. And then once you get in or deal with us, you have the opposite experience. So appreciate your comments. Yeah. And again, this is awesome to be able to get to have a conversation with you.
1: You know, the other thing I think is simply to stay, to, to check in with people at all levels a lot, like see if they'll talk to you about, you know, what's going on, that if you can create that atmosphere where from time to time, they'll tell you, what are they worried about? What's frustrating? What are they hopeful about? You'll, that's the way you will learn things that it might be that the people who report to you won't know or won't want to tell you. And so Checking in in that way can be so helpful. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sean. And Sue.
6: Hi, Robert. Sue Hutchison, president of Equifax Canada. So such great work. I, I give, I'm mad at Craig for all the books I have to read from all these interesting people he's introduced. So I have a stress level that's increasing of uh, yours is one of them. No, My
1: my apologies for contributing <laughs>
6: So maybe like a a comment, maybe to you, Sean, and just kind of my experience that I've talked to Craig about, and then a question for Robert. It's funny, during COVID, I found myself understanding more about people more quickly because you were in their kitchen or in their living room or at their cottage. And there's dogs barking and kids walking behind the screens and cats on laptops and so it was almost like you were full on exposed to their, their whole self. Whereas, you know, in the office, you kind of have to make more of an effort. Do you have children? How's your, you know, whatever. So for, for me, it was kind of a lesson and wow, like I immediately had all this personal information and I, Sean joined in November, 2020. So I was kind of hired in and couldn't meet anybody, no clients, no staff. So I, I'm empathetic but it's kind of taught me a lesson because i now know so much more about folks including customers that had i don't know their kids pictures behind them and then i discovered they had children like it might have taken me longer or maybe i wouldn't never have asked at that level of detail so it's kind of been a lesson in what what you were saying robert about like interpersonal skills and People being noticed and recognized and yeah. understood and seen for their whole self, like yeah. it was sort of a lesson that I'm trying to continue to remember. What did I learn, you know, virtually that I can remember? How are your da-da-da, whatever? So that's that's just kind of my experience. So my question is like, is it all nurture? What did the study find about nature versus nurture?
1: Oh, yeah. You,
6: these kids and it's like wow that's such a the middle child is so happy and then the other one's more somber and like yeah
1: yeah yeah
6: with at least as from an outsider's view the same experience although when you talk to the kids they had totally different experiences of their right. family life and upbringing but what right. would you say about that
1: yeah well first of all i just want to say that what you said about like you you take the time to notice what's on somebody's screen like you could just be all business right but you say, you know, you notice the cat going by or you notice something in the background that someone is, you know, obviously not hiding. They're showing it. And so, you, you know, it is a way to get to see somebody. And I bet you those people are so grateful that you've just noticed mm-hmm. something in their life. It makes a difference, as I'm sure you see, right? The CEO actually mm-hmm. noticed and noticed mm-hmm. what's going on back there.
6: One funny story, there was a guy who had a shell behind his desk, so it was, I don't know how wide it was, but it appeared to be kind of four or five inches, and he had this giant orange cat that looked like Garfield, and it, was, and it would sit behind him with this really grumpy face, like, during these, and he, it kind of forgets that the cat is there, and it was, like, hysterical. Anyway, so I love it.
1: I love so. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a guy at MIT who figured out a way on Zoom to have a banana—a picture, it must have been a photo of a banana—just float by at random times on his screen. <laughs> I and mean, he was just interested to see who did anybody notice Blair-ish. during this very business-like meeting. It was just. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so to your question, so what about how much of this is inborn, right? Yeah. And actually, there's some research on this. There's a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky who did an analysis of a lot of data. Her question was: how much of this is inborn temperament, meaning probably yeah. genetically based? How much of it is our current circumstances in our life, like right now? And how much of it is in our control? How much could we, how much could we move the needle on our own happiness? Yeah. And her finding was it about 50% seems to be genetic, seems to be inborn temperament. Mm-hmm. And you probably know this because, though, I don't know if, you, I can't remember if you were talking about children that are your own or other people's, but you notice that like from the moment they're born, they're different. I, mm-hmm. I have two sons and they are so different from the moment they came out of the womb. And so we know that there's inborn temperament that makes a huge difference. And that's, that gives all of us what's sometimes referred to as a happiness set point. She estimated about 50% of our mood is that, is is genetically based. About 10% 10 is our current circumstance. Meaning, you know, do I have a job I like? And then about 40% is malleable. It's under our control. Which And that's a lot. Which means that we can do things that enhance our mood that enhance our well-being. And that there are these there's some pretty tried and true ways to do that, including building warmer relationships. Great. Thank you so much. Great question. And
0: love the story about the cat and now the floating banana. I've got to see how I can maybe that's downloadable somewhere.
6: Right, um, you're gonna have to step up your backgrounds, make <laughs> them more like yeah. animated.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I've been inspired to, today
1: <laughs> for sure.
3: And,
1: and well, so let me just tell you that. the the floating the floating banana was from the MIT Media Lab. So <laughs> these people are sophisticated.
3: Ah. Yeah.
0: I'll have what? to make friends. We've got about 10 minutes left. Bob is, I mean, it's remarkable. So thank you so much, Bob. He's still teaching, still has an active clinical practice on top of all of this extraordinary work that he's doing and 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 taking time out of his schedule today. So we've got about 10 minutes left. Other questions from people
3: in the audience? Yes, JF, go ahead. Hi, JF, president of Montebello Packaging. Just a quick question. Was there any distinction between, because we're talking about relationship at work, or was there yeah. also a, any distinction with relationship outside of work regarding and is there any way to it? Or was it all convoluted together as a relationship?
1: You know, it's a, it's a really good question. We never did specific analyses about, you know, your work friends versus your home life, your friends and family at home. We didn't And so there wouldn't be any way to answer a question, for example, like, which makes you happier or which is more important. I think the only thing we know is that all of these things kind of of contribute to an overall relational life, if you will. And and so one of the things we do know, and we write about this in the book a lot, that that it's really important not to think of work as separate from, you know, your life and not to think, you know, to think of work as more of an opportunity to have relationships that matter because we spend so many hours at work that it's really important to take advantage of those opportunities when we can.
3: That's great. And I could just, in my previous life, I was a police officer. So I've been I've been able to experience both different types of relationship that you can get because having partners in a car, spending a lot of time. Yeah. The team, it was your bonded. You know, these are your friends. It's like to a certain level where you never can get that outside of it. We're now in the corporate world, and it's just so much different, completely different. You don't get to the same level. You don't get, obviously you don't spend as much time talking, but just different relationship on different types of work that we do.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, being a a leader means that there's this greater risk of isolation. Because how do you, what do you do when everybody reports to you? And that's a, that's a tricky thing. So. Know, that's why a lot of leaders find peer groups, you know, other leaders of other organizations that they can talk to. Excellent. Thank you,
3: JF. Uh, Yusri. Thanks. I uh, very much enjoyed this. And I too have ordered the book as we're talking. I was wondering, we touched on not geography, but cultures make a difference. It used to be Finland was the happiest place on earth. I don't know if it still is, but is the findings, or I don't know, I'm wondering if you have data about the findings of the cultures of places like Finland. Are they consistent with this 83-year study or where there's outliers and some things that are going
1: on there? Ooh, boy, that's a big question. Probably one of the one of the differences with for the Scandinavian countries is they are more homogeneous. They're more homogeneous ethnically, racially, so that they don't have the divides that, you know, a place like the United States has. But the other thing is that there is a culture of collective well being. You know, my wife and I were in Copenhagen last spring, and what was just so clear was that people were just so decent and reasonable. And they seemed that way. And we were, as we were asking Danish friends, like how things worked, there was just much more of a culture of less of individual achievement and more of collective well being and concern for that. That that just kind of subtly permeated conversations.
0: One of the questions from uh, one of my uh, clients that wasn't able to attend today, they're wondering about, is there any insights that came out in terms of how to have healthier conflict? Because relationships have challenges. So what do we do when there's inevitable conflict? Are any lessons yeah. about how to navigate conflict well and, and less well?
1: Yeah, yeah. Boy, boy, that's a, you know, if, if I had the definitive answer to that, oh, I'd win the Nobel Prize. But there are some principles we find from the research. And, and I bet you know these as a psychologist too, Craig. But one thing is that often it's, we lose the longer view. Like when we have a conflict, it's really important when we can to step back and to think, okay, long-term, what's most important? Is it that I win this argument or is it that this person and I stay on good terms because we have a lot invested in each other or we, I need this person for my work. I, you know, or there's so many reasons why we might realize, boy, long-term I need this person. So I don't want to just win and feel like I got what I wanted and to heck with how this person feels. So stepping back and taking a longer view is really important. The other thing we find is that people who are able to bring curiosity even when they get triggered. So if you can say okay tell me more. Okay, let me see let me see if I can get this. What are what's making you want to do it this way? You know, it's that kind of just let me understand further cuz people are often grateful when you just want to hear more about what they're thinking. <laughs> One of my friends applied this when talking to people who believe in QAnon conspiracy theories, he said, "I've started asking people, okay, how does the the satellite in outer space that controls our children, how does that actually work, and and how do you how's it fueled? And you know, they, they they really get curious. But the other thing I think that's important is to realize that that maintaining some kind of affection, if it's a personal relationship." And respect is really vital. Like when we studied, we videotaped couples having arguments. And the couples who had the best relationships and the most stable relationships were couples where even when they were arguing with each other, you could see on videotape that there was affection and there was respect. It wasn't the level of anger. It was that. It was affection and respect that matters. And if you can kind of hold on to that as you are negotiating differences, it makes a huge difference in the outcome. Wonderful insights and fantastic things
0: to keep in mind as we navigate our personal and professional relationships. I know you've got another meeting very quickly or very soon, so I want to be respectful of your, of your time. Any final words of wisdom, Bob, for us in this forum today in terms of how each of us can pursue the good life?
1: <laughs> well, I think words of wisdom. The, the thing that we lay out in the book in the first few pages is nobody's happy all the time. No life is without challenge. Nobody has the good life completely figured out ever. And then that's part of the richness of it. So, you know, it's just in some ways I'm stating the obvious, but we can get the messages from each other and certainly from social media that Everybody else has this figured out. And I'm the only one who wakes up some mornings thinking, I have no clue what my life is about. Right. And what we know is that that's everybody we've studied, thousands of people. That's the case for everybody. And that that can be a relief sometimes when we feel this pressure to have it all figured out and to be happy all the time. Well, thank you
0: so, so much. This was just a wonderfully rich conversation really appreciated your insights it's an honor for me to have you here and just love your passion behind the 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 work that you're doing and and so great to be able to facilitate this dialogue so but bob thank you so so much this is an absolute pleasure and privilege and really appreciate your time here this afternoon i see lots of applause and everything else yeah, so yeah. It was just a real joy
1: well and thanks to all of you this was a really fun discussion i really enjoyed That's it. Awesome. all right great thank, thank you bye thanks. Thank you
0: so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next
3: week for another transformational episode.